Hello, everybody. Thanks for tuning in for another edition of my show. I'm Jack Butler, your host, and this is where we bring you conscious change agents and people who can add value to your aspiration to live a full spectrum life. I'm excited to have uh, my guest with me today, Beatrice Chestnut. Beatrice is a psychotherapist and has been working with the Enneagram for 24 years. She is author of The Complete Enneagram, 27 Paths to Self-Knowledge, and she has a coaching, psychotherapy, and business development practice here in San Francisco. Beatrice, welcome to the show. Great to have you here. Thank you. It's good to be here. So I'm pleased because I, th I think, I was uh, reflecting on this this morning, you're the, only the second guest that I've had on the show who has come to me via someone saying, this is a really great book, you should read it, and me not being aware of, of your work and digging into the book and being like, yes, I agree, this is really great work. Mm -hmm. So uh, you know, firstly, uh, well done on the book. Before we get into the, the sort of territory that you cover in, in your book and your work, uh, I wanted to ask you what your journey has been with the Enneagram. Uh, how, how did you get into it, and how has it been personally useful to you? Well, I learned the Enneagram in 1990 from a friend's father. So it was just sort of a casual over-the-dinner-table kind of thing, and I started reading about it. I read Helen Palmer's first book, and it totally blew my mind. Um, it was... I never realized that something could describe me to myself in a way that could be helpful to understand what I knew about myself, but also what I didn't know about myself. Yes. So I got really into it really fast. Uh, I moved to Chicago where a cousin of mine knew the Enneagram and turned me on to the Gurdjieff work, which is sort of the theory behind the Enneagram. And so I got further into it and just loved it. And it actually changed the course of my life in many ways. It got me into therapy for the first time. It got me working on myself to be more conscious. I um, mean, it also changed the course of my career because I was headed toward being an academic and studying communication and mass media, uh, but I went back to school and became a therapist because I was so influenced by the Enneagram and how powerful it was. Fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's amazing when something comes into your life and then you can look back and it's a, a sort of clear fork in the path. Um, Maybe give us one example of something that the Enneagram pointed out to you personally that you never would have worked out, perhaps on your own. Oh, there are a lot of those. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, one thing was, uh, the first thing it really showed me was that how not in touch with my feelings and needs I was at the time. And this was when I was about 30 years old. and. Yep. I was in a women's group um, and it, when I was just learning the, about the Enneagram and at one point the uh, facilitator of the women's group looked to me and she said, what do you need from the group today? Hmm. And I had this experience of like existential anxiety and nothingness. <laughs> and I realized at that point I had no idea what I needed. It was just a total blank place. Um, and that was huge, you know, and then I actually went into therapist, uh, into therapy with that therapist and I slowly started to realize like how out of touch with my feelings I was even though I thought of myself as an emotional person. So uh, that sort of started, started me on working on how do I reconnect with my feelings and I'm a two on the Enneagram and so it, it sort of showed me how I sort of lacked a sense of self because I was so oriented toward looking to other people uh, for my identity and how I should feel and how I should be. And so that was huge right there. It sort of brought me back to myself slowly. Yeah. 
Fantastic. So let's perhaps lay the, the ground for uh, what you cover uh, in your book. Uh, so most people that know the Enneagram at a certain level are probably aware that there are nine human types, nine Enneatypes. And there are also these things called the three instincts, named variously, but there's you know, self-preserving instinct, the sexual or one-on-one -on -one instinct, and the social or navigating instinct. And I find that that's lesser known in the, the sort of general uh, awareness of the Enneagram world. Um, why is it important to know those two things, and how do you see them interacting? Well, of course, it's good to start with the nine types. Um, because it's simpler and more straightforward, yes. um, but it's, it's not the whole picture. Um, I think there's a lot of confusion and um, there's not a lot of clear information that's uniform across teachers and teachings within the Enneagram world about the subtypes, which is very different than the nine types, where I think generally there's sort of a common understanding. There's certainly differences and idiosyncratic understandings, but most people agree on the general contours of the nine types. Uh, but the way the three instincts mix with the nine types to create 27 subtypes or three versions of each of the nine types is, I think, less well understood, but very important. Yeah. And is that how you see it, that it's sort of, uh, you know, we've got three vectors over here, if you will, and nine over here, and they sort of merge in some, uh, you know, combination or alchemical process. Like, is, is there a clear understanding of how the, the nine and the 27 come to be? Well, I think one of the things that separates the way I view inst uh, the subtypes, uh, which is based on Claudio Naranjo's work, is that, um, yes, the instincts mixed together with the passion to give a subtype. And I think sometimes the word instinct and subtypes are used interchangeably, but they really aren't interchangeable. <laughs> and so it's, we all have these, everybody has three instincts for preserving themselves, for the social instinct, for what I think of as getting along with the herd, yes. um, and one-to-one -one bonding, right? And, and we can sort of see that. We all have that, but the idea is, is that one tends to dominate in us. Now, it really depends, from my point of view, what type you are, one of the nine, what that looks like, what that dominant instinct, how it manifests, what it ends up looking like, and what your personality generally ends up looking like and feeling like, um, that, that mixture is very important. Yeah. Just on the, uh, the, the dominant instinct, as you refer to it there, uh, I don't know if you use the language of, of instinctual stack, but sort of like the, the way in which those instincts show up in the individual and how much attention they get. I didn't know if you'd found any particular patterns to that instinctual stack. Uh, you know, are most people very much with a dominant and a blind spot instinct, or are some people much more kind of sort of equally uh, put together in their instincts? Um, I find that usually there's one that's kind of in the lead. There's one that's, and, and I, I don't always use the word stacking, but you can. Okay. Um, there's an order, you know. We all have all three generally, um, but there's one that's usually on top, that's usually dominant, that guides your behavior more than the other two. There's usually one that's kind of in second place. Um, for some people, it's very close second. 
You know, they yes. almost can't decide which one is theirs. Um, and, and then I usually find that there's a third that is more repressed. And because the instincts are energies, because they're biological imperatives that kind of push our behavior, yes. um, I think ha seeing it as repressed energy, the third one is a good way to look at it as opposed to a blind spot because it's sort of something that's held back. And sometimes it can kind of surge up. It can kind of come up. Uh, but for most people, usually that one's kind of in the background and it's not as accessible. Got it. Yeah, I've certainly uh, had my own journey with uh, becoming more aware of the lack of self-preserving instinct in my life. Certainly five years ago, that was a, a big part of my, my journey with the Enneagram. And uh, part of that for me seemed to be like, you know, it's interesting the language of repressed energy and also just sort of valuing it and not looking yeah. at people that have that as their dominant energy and sort of feeling like, oh, that's a less useful or evolved or something way of being in the world. Right. Um, right. Talk, uh, talk to me about what you mean by countertype. So um, for each of the nine types, of course, there are three subtypes based on the three instincts. Um, that for each group of three, for all the nine types, there's one that kind of goes against the energy of the passion. It's kind of upside down. It, 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 it flows in a different direction than the other yes. two, generally speaking. And what do you mean by um, And so those are called countertypes. Counter and by passion, I mean um, sort, of, uh, sort of the central emotional motivator, which is you know, pride in myself for a two, fear in sixes for one, it's anger, or three, it's deceit or self-deceit, four, it's envy, and so on. Um, it's there's an there, there's a sort of an energetic flow to the way you're motivated emotionally by your passion or your chief feature as Gurdjieff called it. It's very yeah. central to how you express yourself in the world. It's often unconscious though. Um, so depending on what subtype you are, that really and the mixture and it's very much a mixture or multiplication as opposed to an addition. So if you're self-preservation and like me and your, uh, your, your passion is pride, there's an alchemy that happens when self-preservation mixes with pride that it structures the personality patterns. And the countertype is the one that kind of goes against the passion or it isn't so obvious how the passion is present there. And of course the most famous of the countertypes is counterphobic six or in, in my version of the subtypes, the one-to-one -one or sexual six. And that's a six that goes against fear. And I like to use that one as the first example because it's so obvious. Um, it's the fight or flight response. So uh, uh, the self-preservation six is the phobic six and they kind of, they're very actively fearful, they're feeling it all the time. Whereas the countertype, the sexual six, um, goes against fear with strength and intimidation and they don't look at afraid at all and sometimes they don't even register their fear but fear is driving them nonetheless it just takes this really different form this counter form yeah yeah it's quite subtle in some ways for people to to, to, to notice that like it feels like the perhaps for some counter types there's a, it's a little bit more of a digging into the, the real motivation and um, in the self-discovery that has to happen right um, before we get into a few the countertypes in a little bit more detail so we can give some you know, kind of worked out examples. Perhaps mm -hmm. you could just go around the nine and just name which are the countertypes in each of the nine. 
Sure, sure. So for type 1, it's the one-to-one -one or sexual subtype. That's the countertype. It's the one that's explicitly angry. The other two are kind of putting a wraps on their anger. They're, they're repressing or pushing down their anger. Yeah. For two, yep, for two, it's self-preservation. That's me. Um, so whereas the energy of two is up and out toward other people, um, the, the, the self-preservation two has a countervailing sort of move back away from people. Um, for the self-preservation three is the countertype for type three. Uh, self-preservation four, so for all three of the heart types, it's self-preservation, that's the countertype. So self-preservation four is the countertype for four. And for type five, it's the one-to-one -one or sexual uh, subtype that's the countertype. For type six, as I mentioned, it's uh, the sexual six, counterphobic six. Uh, for seven, it's the social seven is the countertype. For eight, it's also the social. And for nine, it's also the social. So for seven, eight, nine, the social subtype is the countertype for all three. Do those groupings match onto any other groupings that you've noticed in the Enneagram? So it sounds like two, three, and four the self-prez, uh, seven, eight, nine are social, and four, five, and one are, I'm sorry, you, uh, this, I'm sorry five, five, six, six and one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they don't so much, and it's funny because people are always looking for symmetry and pattern yes. in the Enneagram naturally, um, and so some people get a little frustrated that it's not more neatly laid out. Um, but I have a feeling it's, you know, when you're dealing with three, you know, it's sometimes there's a sort of a different twist on things. And so, so yeah, I haven't really noticed any patterns that match that quite exactly. Got it. So I know that uh, you know, speaking as a, a social seven, um, but also just noticing uh, some of the facets of uh, kind of my viewership, there are a bunch of sevens that are drawn to uh, the sort of entrepreneurial, adventuresome, uh, doer lifestyle. Um, perhaps you could start there and just talk about the social seven in a bit more detail. How would I recognize in myself or in someone else that I might be a social seven? Sure. So for the seven, the passion is gluttony. So with gluttony, it's a focus on, you know, uh, wanting more, usually more stimulating experiences. It's not always about eating or something like that. It's more stimulation, more pleasure, more whatever's good, there, there's a desire for more. Um, so in gluttony, there's actually a hint of exploitation because sevens tend to be more self-referencing than other referencing and so there's a little bit about of, of what do I want and, and, and can, you know, how can I get more for myself. Uh, but the social seven is different. The social seven is anti-glutton. There's a kind of a desire for other people to have good experiences. There's a desire to sacrifice gluttony or sacrifice your own self-interest for like to build a better world, let's say, or so more other people can have a better experience. Uh, so social sevens kind of go against the seven sort of, you know, I'm sort of centrally focused on myself and my experience and very much focused on creating positive experiences for other people. Uh, they can work very hard through idealism. They usually have good social skills to create a better society or a better world or a better experience, a better work experience for other people around them. Um, and so they're not just focused on themselves, but then they also want to be seen as good for their sacrifice, for the fact that they're putting other people first or they're putting the larger good first. Hmm. And how do social sevens tend to grow? Well, for one thing, 
um, like in all of the types, it's, it's observing that dynamic. You know, so of course a lot of this, especially with the subtype behavior, tends to be very unconscious. So part of it is making this conscious. So recognizing what you're motivated by, you know, and just being honest about that and not judging yourself. You know, it's about non-judgmental self-observation is usually the first step. So just recognizing, because social sevens may not always be motivated by what they think they're motivated by. You know, not to say that they're not altruistic. I think often they are, and often they're sincerely enthusiastic, and they have a lot of energy for social causes and for creating a better world. That's absolutely true. But sometimes what they're doing may be motivated by things that are more self-referencing, by a desire to be seen in a positive light, let's say. Um, so just it's sort of about recognizing where are the ego needs here in this for me versus where when am I doing this really because I have a pure intention uh, to do good for other people or to create a positive experience for other people. And when am I sort of maybe overdoing my social activities so, so that I can avoid my own pain? Because I think sometimes there's a way social sevens can act out. That, you know, they're working so hard to create a better experience or to create good things for other people, which is, you know, there's a reality to that. But it can be a way of running away from something that's painful for them personally, and they may not recognize that that's what's getting acted out. So I think just being clear, being more honest with yourself um, about where your motives are coming from, what you're, why you're doing what you're doing, things like that. I know that when I was uh, reading the Social 7 profile in your book, one of the things that got me reflecting was, perhaps you can talk to this a little bit, the, the way in which, uh, as a Social 7, sometimes you can sort of be there for the other, and um, I've found that, in, particularly in the context of like s people with strong energy or strong personalities, there can sometimes be a way that uh, the sort of the, the dynamic of conversation or being with someone else can feel like the attention is much more kind of over there than it is over here. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Is there anything that you can talk to that dynamic of kind of why that's occurring or, or how to? You know how to how to do more. I mean, obviously, conscious awareness is curative in some ways. Right. Well, I think one of the things you're pointing out with your question is how social sevens can actually look like other types, which is important to know right there. You know, because what you're describing, what you just said, could describe a two, for instance, yes. or or maybe a nine. You know, so one. So that's just one thing I wanted to note that your question brings up. But I think part of it is just. Again, being conscious of what's going on in this dynamic and of being conscious of the tendency to focus on the other person and sort of be able to have sort of an inner dialogue about, okay, how, how, how can I better balance the attention? What do I need here? You know, what am I in this for versus why am I focusing so much attention on this person? Again, it, being clear about motives, being clear about where the energy is, where the focus is. Um, what's going on there? Because then, again, it's uh, you know that's why I love you know your the, what you're doing on your website is because it's all about being more conscious. It's if you can make more conscious of okay, the reason I'm focusing on this person, maybe it's coming from an anxiety. And sevens can often be driven by anxiety, but not really always in touch with it. So maybe I'm over focusing on someone because I need something, you know, or because I'm avoiding something or because I'm worried about something or I want attention from this person or I want them to see me in a positive light. There are all these things that be going on and so just be, by being able to inquire into uh, what's happening for you can be a really important thing because once you start answering all those questions all of a sudden things can shift. 
I know one of the things just on that sort of theme that was uh, important sort of developmental inflection point for me was uh, back in my London days um, going for a, a drink with a buddy and kind of getting right to the end of the conversation and they're saying oh but you know tell me about you I'm interested in you I've, I feel like I haven't really heard anything about what's going on in your life and and my just getting a sense of like yeah actually that's not super satisfying like as, as much as and I love people I love listening to people I love learning from them and I love holding and providing a great space for people that I can you know and yeah it's not the only thing that I'm uh, in the world to do and if and I, I what I got I think up until that point I'd felt that that kind of request was a bit insincere because the narrative I was running was well if you're interested you would ask so you wouldn't you wouldn't yeah. take 90 minutes of conversation and then at the end say oh but I want to know about you um, but I actually got the, the, the sincerity of that in, in the way that it landed with me and then started to notice that oh you know conversational dynamics it very much takes two to tango and two to play into a certain you know pattern of attention or pattern of giving and receiving and even if I might have a sort of preference and particularity for a sort of relative ease in that where it's not like I'm having to fight to get into the conversation just really noticing how my way of being was playing into that um, and particularly when I was with people who were just super super attuned in listening sort of having a sense of oh I just talk into this space and I talk and I talk and I talk and we're not really in a, in a conversation. Um, right. Perhaps you can, I know we also have a bunch of threes that are part of the community here, perhaps you could uh, tell us a bit about self Prez 3 because I think self Prez 3 does look pretty different than what most people think of as 3. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question and one of the reasons why I love the version of the subtype that I'm teaching and writing about right now is because there are types present in the 27 subtypes that I describe that you will not find in the 9 types and I think a lot of people don't recognize that when they think about subtypes they don't recognize that actually the self pres 3 is a great example of a type that no one really knew about you know yes. that doesn't get talked about most people think of the only three as the social three which is the three that likes to be on stage that sort of um, embraces vanity more that yes. sort of wants recognition very yes. competitive very, very oriented toward winning and looking good and loves to be um, in the center of things. Um, well, self-pres 3 is quite different. Um, self-pres 3 wants to be seen as a model of a good way to be. They want to be very ethical. Yes. It's actually, a, a self-pres 3s can look like ones because they, they want to do things really well. So sometimes social 3s, it's more important for them to look good Yes. actually be good <laughs> for the self-pres yes. 3, exactly. It's really important to actually be good you know, and, and follow a model of what it is to be good by social consensus. So again, it's the three looking out to the social world to determine what they're going to identify with and what their image should be. But for the self-preservation three, being good and being um, ethical and getting, you know, being virtuous means not being vain. Yes. Right? So you have this twisty thing where, as Naranjo says, Self-preservation threes have a vanity for having no vanity. Yes. So they want to look good, just like the other threes, but they don't want you to know that they want to look good. That's they don't. Self-preservation threes. <laughs> exactly. They think they think there's something wrong with sort of liking to be on stage, with bragging. In fact, it can really bother them when people brag. So they're very against that. So rather, the way they get. Um, sort of what they're more focused on and the name of the self-preservation three is security 
is working really, really, really hard to be good, to have a good image. Um, they, they're incredible to have an aura of security around them. They're the kind of people that feel like they have to take care of themselves. They're very um, autonomous and self-sufficient, and they also have to take care of everyone else. So that's quite a lot. So self-preservation threes work really hard, um, very oriented toward being productive, very oriented toward doing it by themselves, um, feel like they have to do it all on their own. And imagine if you, you're a hard worker and you want to look good and be good, that's a yes. lot to do. So they can tend to be a little bit harder to reach emotionally or in relationship because they're so focused. It's like they're, you know, 24-7, they've got their effort going toward being good and getting the job done and getting it done right and looking good and all of that. But then they also have to not show that they want to look good and to guard against being vain or bragging or being seen to show off. Um, I often joke that self-preservation threes are often the threes that want to have a nice car, but they don't. But they're embarrassed about it. You know, they don't necessarily want you to know that they drive the big car or something like that. So yes. it, it, it's this consciousness, just like with the social seven. There's sort of a an underlying like worry about being gluttonous. There's an underlying worry about being vain and being seen to want to hog the spotlight. Um, and so even though they like being in front of people, and again, just like the other threes, they're super competent and they're good at being on stage, they're yes. very sensitive to uh, not showing off, uh, not you know, telling people too much about their achievements openly. You know, they want you to know, but they don't want, they're, they're not going to tell you. Yes. Yeah. Sophisticated. And yeah. it's curious that you're saying that. I'm thinking about the times when you know, I've maybe noticed people not being very available and just thinking about all the things that can be going on, yeah, maybe mostly at an unconscious level, that could have someone not be available, which isn't to do with them not liking you or not valuing you, but just that they're kind of holding sort of so much of a reality that you're not really part of right? as, as their kind of lens on reality. Yeah, yeah. I have that same experience with some of my self-preservation three friends. It can be hard to reach them because they're working so hard and moving so fast and they've got so much on their plate all the time. I'm curious about the, uh, the self-preservation uh, four because mm. um, I, uh, I don't know how this works in, in your world. I sometimes feel like there are certain types that are a little bit easier sometimes to to see or at least you know has it a decent guess as to whether that's someone's type um, and I think uh, sort of for me historically eight and four have been two of those types so I'm curious about the self-pres four and, and how different it might look from the, the common perception of a four. Yeah, I'm really glad you asked about self-preservation four because that's another type that I think no one really knew about right. uh, until these 27, until this version of the subtypes came out. And I often have people come to workshops I teach that find their type for the first time and their self-preservation four because it was really? just never described. And just on that, so I'm clear, when you say people weren't really aware of this until these came out. You're talking about Claudio's work that he kind of made public at a certain time. Had he known about these all along, or was it sort of part of his inquiry that surfaced these? That's a good question. My sense of it is he's been developing and evolving his understanding of this 27 subtypes for a long time. 
um, probably since the 70s, but I think just in the last 10 years, probably 15 years, I mean, I, I came in contact with this version of the subtypes in 2004 when Naranjo did a presentation at the IEA conference in Washington, D.C., yep. and it totally uh, just revolutionized my understanding of myself and yeah. of the Enneagram because it was like this whole huge new download of information from the guy who brought us the nine types in the first place. Right. Um, so I think part of the way the confusion that comes in the Enneagram community about the subtypes is I think he put out a little bit out there in the 70s and 80s, but since then, and, and a lot of people kind of went by that, but since then he's, in all his workshops that he does, been uh, just developing a lot more nuance and specificity to the to the types, and so that's that's what I'm referring to is his more modern sort of 21st century version of the subtypes. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Great. So self press four. So self press four. So self press four is a four that has all the same feelings and internal dynamics of a four, but holds it back and keeps it to themselves a lot more. So the way Naranjo puts it is there's something about fours related to suffering. Um, so envy kind of fuels a focus on suffering, on, you know, I've, other people have something I don't have, what's good is out there, I'm somehow deficient is sort of the theme. Um, but each of them acts out suffering a different way. So the idea is, is that the self-pres four is long-suffering. In other words, they kind of hold in their suffering and they suffer in silence. They, 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 they don't communicate about their pain or their suffering. Social fours, on the other hand, kind of more wallow in the suffering. They're more in it. They feel it all the time. They'll tell you about it. Uh, they're more in it, they, so they suffer. And then the one-to-one -one four makes other people suffer. So there's kind of a way they 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 sort of put out. They don't they don't want to suffer, and so they say, okay, there's something wrong with what you're doing, and that's why I'm suffering. You know, as a way of trying to get their needs met somehow. So for the self-preservation four, it's they don't always look like a four because you don't see what you usually understand as being four-ish, yes. you know, as being able to talk really easily about how they're feeling, especially their darker feelings, uh, being able to get in touch with, you know, feeling like sadness and hopelessness and longing and, and anger, all of those things are much more uh, out there for the social four and the one-to-one -one four as opposed to the self-preservation four. Um, one way of putting it is the self-preservation four is more masochistic than melodramatic. Hmm. Like so it's more about holding it inside, toughing out the pain, you know, it's like instead of like feeling and hanging out in envy, they work really, really, really hard to get what they don't have that they envy. So it's a lot about proving themselves or, you know, just uh, enduring pain without complaining. That's sort of the coping strategy. It's like I'll get love from the outside if I show how I'm not complaining, how I'm being good by not telling you how bad I feel. I'm going to hold that inside and so make things better for you. So it's more of a little bit more of a one-ish, two-ish, three-ish, uh, four, um, sometimes five. But it's, it's definitely a more holding back. They cry alone. Uh, they're, sometimes they're not very in touch with their feelings. Other times they are, but they don't communicate about it very much. Um, it's the idea of, like, I can endure pain without wincing. I can get through this and 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 do this without complaining about it. But the problem is, is that sometimes they put out a lot of effort and then they sabotage themselves, and so they can work really hard and not get anywhere. Sometimes, other times they can achieve a lot because they're very oriented toward, like I said, working to get what they feel like they don't have that they need.
Yeah, that's interesting to me because I you know, move a lot in entrepreneurial and social entrepreneurial circles and I've met people who are pretty kind of kick-ass entrepreneurial types and, and it surprises me a little bit when they say that they're for just a sort of level of sort of drivenness and kind of like operational kind of focus which I'm, with a lot of fours I know is just really where they don't want to spend time and it's not really of interest to them. Um, and so when they talk about their experience of suffering, it's it's uh, it's sort of been curious to me. It's always almost felt a little bit like, oh, is that a spiritual teaching that you've taken on, as opposed to what, what what's your actual experience of life? But there's a what I'm understanding from you is that there's a way that a bunch of that could be going on internally that we would never have access to. So right, um, yeah, it's just one of the things that makes right. Enneagram so fascinating is just to have more purchase on some of those subtle. You know, intrapersonal dynamics that, unless you've been deep with someone for them to articulate that experience to you, you would never really have a, a handle on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's why I always hope people will be more humble about typing because it's so easy to mistake, say, a self preservation four in the workplace for a three. Right on. Because they're very driven. Like you said, there's an operational focus. Um, and you don't necessarily see some of the four stuff that's going on inside because it doesn't always have a place in an organization. So I think what you're saying is right on. So if people are interested to connect more with you and your work, um, what are the best ways of doing that? And I'll just preface it by saying, uh, you know, I have your book on Kindle, and I think it's certainly in recent times has been the most uh, reference book that I've gone to. So one of the things I really like about your book and on Kindle is you can just really quickly go, oh, what was that thing about social three and hit the three and scroll through and find it and uh, or self three in this instance. So um, I love your book. Well done with that. Um, where you. can people get hold of that? And is there anything else that you'd like to share with them? Well, yeah, um, all uh, there's a lot about the subtypes in my book and the types and the work for the types um, in my book, and they can get it on Amazon or there, you can order it from your local bookstore. Um, and I also have a subtype booklet, which is just a 40-page kind of bullet point, uh, very short description of the subtypes if you want that as a handy reference. And you can get that through my website, through emailing me through my website. And my website is BeatriceChestnut.com. And I'm going to be, by the end of November, unveiling a series of trainings that I'm doing um, next year, um, in 2015. So I'm doing four different trainings in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, and then I'll be doing a few different trainings around the world so far. So um, you can, right now it's not updated, but it will be. And so you can always check my website to see about workshops. Brilliant. Well. There's lots more we could talk about. We're probably coming to the end of uh, our, our time together for this show. Uh, I just wanted to sort of close by asking you, what don't we know about the Enneagram? Like, what is the research that's most interesting, you know, either going on in the field or that you're undertaking personally? Or are there any parts of, uh, you know, where you've dug into the Enneagram where you're like, you know what, we're pretty good or we're getting there, but I don't think we've exactly got this down or we don't exactly know why you know, why type and instinct interact in this exact way. We just kind of know that they do. So, yeah, what are you most curious about kind of unfolding more enneagrammatic understanding of? Right. Well, that's a great question. Um, I think I, I see the enneagram as something that we are slowly decoding. You know, I think some people think that we've just got this picture and that that's it and 
yeah. that's the end of it, you know. But for me, I think it's this ancient symbol that has so much in it um, that we're slowly kind of yeah. figuring it out piece by piece. So I think there's a lot um, that we can that we're still working on. I think one piece is how how do the centers interact? In the Gurdjieff work, one big piece after self-observation is noticing when you're coming from which center, you know, and I think that can really help our understanding from subtype. When am I mainly coming from my head center? When am I mainly coming from my emotional center? When am I mainly, when is instinct and behavior more in the foreground? I think that's something that we need a lot, a lot of work on. There's a guy in Brazil, Ronnie Opias, who's doing amazing energy work with the Enneagram and sort of the symbol moving people along the, the carpet on the floor and sort of what each number represents in terms of the transformational journey. I think that's a really important thing. I tried to uh, hint at that in my book in terms of how I start off, why each type is sort of a, a point along the journey that we all need to take. Um, and I think also getting a better understand, common understanding of things throughout the Enneagram universe. I think there are a lot of people who have different points of view, definitely about the subtypes, but even about the types and different aspects of the system. So, you know, and I think it's tricky because once you start making your living with the Enneagram and you've got your ego oriented toward your Enneagram work, it's hard to adjust and say, actually, I think this person is more right about this thing or I am learning something new about this thing. I think yes. sometimes we don't, we aren't updating our knowledge. It can be hard to take in new information, even though it's really good if it kind of goes against or it doesn't quite fit in with what we thought we knew before. So I guess I'd, I'd like for sort of people that love the Enneagram to come together and have richer conversations about what works for them, what's true, what you know, and how we can understand things in a common way that can help us all move forward in our journeys. Yes. Yeah, I love the spirit of kind of collaborative innovation. I think you're talking to that. Yeah. And one quick question just on something you mentioned about the, the sort of transformational journey that we can all go on. Yeah. And I mean, I recognize that, you know, we have the nine types within each of us, even if there's a type that we predominate in. Uh, how do you, so headline, how do you see that transformational journey going? Is there, a, is there some kind of sequence that people need to experience different types in? Or is it more about drawing your attention to certain types that you feel like are underexpressed? You know, for people that want to sort of live the full spectrum, if you will, of the Enneagram, uh, how best to do that? Well, I, I think there's two different ways of looking at it. One is, is that, yes, the Hello? Nine or have all nine types Ooh. within us. Oh, sorry, we dropped then. Um, oh, okay. Could you just scroll back to, there's kind of two ways of looking sure. at that? Sure, sure. There's two ways of looking at that. One is, is that I believe there's a lot of evidence in the esoteric work behind the Enneagram that the Enneagram is a map that starts at one and that one symbolizes something about the journey and then two and three and that that really going around it has a lot of meaning. Um, yes. Don't have a lot of time to say what that is right now. Yep. Uh, but then the other way is just the idea that we have all nine types within us um, and that each type is a prototype of something we all have. So threes are just the prototype of 
having a personality and then uh, identifying with the image of the personality and not recognizing that we're much more than that. And so sort of uh, recognizing sort of what, what, what knowledge of each type brings in a larger sense and what you may need to, to sort of know or dwell more on or what energies you may want to live more from as a way of uh, balancing your own bias. You know, so maybe you're someone who tends to give way and avoid conflict and give up your power to other people. And so focusing on what eights do is a really important thing. And even just like what would an eight do in this situation or that kind of thing is another way of going at it. So I think I think both are true. And there could be more than that because, again, I think there's so much in it. Yeah. Well, it's great to be in contact with such a, a rich source of self-discovery and you know, awareness of, of both self and other. And it's been great having you on the show. Thanks for educating us all about countertypes. And thank you for the, the work that you do. And as I say, I really enjoyed your book. I recommend it to people. And uh, I look forward to keeping in touch. Great, great. Thank you so much, Jack. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Thank you.